Hi, I'm Frank Ferris, one of the principals of the Palliative Care Interdisciplinary Curriculum. I want to personally thank you for joining us for this module in our series on chemical dependency. So good morning everyone. My name is Sachin Kale. I'm a palliative care physician at Ohio State. And um, along with Stephanie um, Abel, we're going to be um, presenting a talk today um, looking at substance abuse disorder, implications for palliative care and acute pain management. Our learning objectives for today are um, by the end of this lecture, we would like you to be able to describe best practices for providing safe and effective palliative care in the context of previous or active substance use disorder. We're going to compare the acute pain response in patients with and without a history of substance use disorder. And we're going to describe the management of patients on methadone and buprenorphine during an acute hospitalization. Um, this is obviously a topic that kind of brings a lot of worry for palliative care physicians um, and how do we best provide care for these um, really needy patients. So we're going to talk about some general principles today then also go through some cases at the end of the lecture. So, you know, there's a lot of um, more detailed um, criteria for substance use disorder. I think the most easiest one to remember and most practical one um, is from 1988. And so substance abuse disorder, substance use disorder rather, is a chronic compulsive use of substance resulting in physical, psychological, and or social harm to the user and continued use despite harm. It's influenced by complex genetic, neurobiological, psychosocial, and behavioral determinants. So managing a patient or caring for a patient with either a history of substance use disorder or active substance use disorder provides many challenges for palliative, the palliative team. If not properly managed, substance use disorder can impair compliance with um, the palliative treatment plan, can weaken patient, physician, and nurse, patient nurse relationships, can disrupt the social support network um, of a patient, and can lead to increased symptoms and morbidity and mortality. But I also want to talk a little bit about, I think we all experience that when we, we care for, has anyone cared for a patient with a history of substance use disorder, or active substance use disorder? Yeah, so we all, I think, experience that, right? That worry of, are we doing the right thing? Are we contributing to their, to their addic addiction? If they're in recovery, are we contributing to their relapse? And how, do, and how do we care for them? What I want to talk a little bit on this slide is that there's also a lot of really great opportunities for providing palliative care to these patients. Right? And, and it's, it can actually be really rewarding as well. So pain is often undertreated in patients with, with a history of substance use disorder. This has been shown in, in many studies. Um, Physicians and teams who are not as comfortable prescribing opioids are even less likely to do so if someone who has a history of addiction. And our patients, especially if they have a life-limiting illness, can often ha be in quite a bit of pain. It's important to remember, and I mentioned this, I think, one of my earlier lectures, but that addiction is in itself a terminal illness, right? So a patient who we care for in the context of palliative care then has two life-limiting illnesses instead of just one. And if we can help to provide the resources to help treat their addiction, especially if they have active addiction, we're actually helping to really provide, um, in some ways you could say, a cure, a really important treatment for one of their two terminal illnesses. I really like, I really like this thought. So 
aspects of recovery, of recovery from substance use, such as taking personal responsibility and making amends to wrong family members and friends, are central to growth at the end of life and are not unlike the tasks common to all patients with life-limiting illness. And so a lot of the life review that our patients do towards the end of life um, is heightened with those who have a history of addiction or who maybe are actively addicted. And this provides a really great opportunity for us as the palliative care team to help these patients along that process and to help uh, make amends with family members and with friends and kind of bring peace, peace to their lives. And so this is a really great opportunity for these patients and for us. So um, there are a few principles for palliative care in the context of addiction that I want to talk about. Um, and I'm going to go through these seven. So the first one is we need to assess for substance abuse, right? So before we even know what treatments are available or how to find the best care, we have to be willing to um, talk about it. The key to care for a patient with history of substance um, use disorder or active substance use even is that this has to be a multi multidisciplinary approach. We say this is true, of course, with all our, palli all our palliative care endeavors, but this is especially true here. We need to be able to set realistic goals, and I'll talk a little bit about this on one of my following slides, about what's possible in, in terms of treating a patient with substance use disorder. Um, it's important to evaluate and treat any other psychological disorders that are occurring in the patient, depression, anxiety, um, bipolar, anything like that, it really needs to be addressed and treated as well. It's important to uh, employ universal precautions. Now, we do this with all our patients, right? That's why they're universal precautions, especially important with um, patients with a history or active um, substance use disorder. Consider referral to a 12-step or other addiction treatment program when appropriate. And then always make sure to, as much as possible with the permission of the patient to involve family and friends and help them rebuild that social um, network that um, is often um, very much impaired in patients who have addiction. Um, so I'm going to talk about um, the next four in a little bit more detail. Um, just as a refresher, what are some of the universal uh, precautions that we, we use for all our patients um, who we prescribe opioids for? Drug screens, yep. What else? Medication use agreements. Yep, medication use agreements are kind of two, two big ones, right? Good. So I'm going to talk about these other, these first four in a little bit more detail. So the first one is the need to assess substance abuse. So clinicians sometimes don't want to ask because they they're, they fear they're offending the patient. Right? And I've, done, I've definitely been guilty of that before. I suspect something, I don't know, I really don't want to offend them, so I just don't bother to ask at all. Also, patients may be hesitant to report. Um, and what I've done, I find myself doing in the past is I'm hesitant to ask them, they're hesitant to report, I have an awkward exchange where I'm kind of just bluntly asking them the question, and they're gonna, I can see the wall kind of just coming up, and that's kind of the end, and then I move on to the next topic. So what's recommended is a careful, graduated style of a patient interview. So kind of ease into it, you know. Remember that the patient, you know, especially if this is your first time visiting, meeting the patient, especially our patients who are dealing with another life-limiting illness, build that rapport first, you know. Spend the first few minutes building a rapport, explaining how we can help, explaining why we're asking the questions we're asking. Ask about the role of drugs in the patient's life, starting with caffeine and nicotine. You might see them saying, oh yeah, I drink a lot of coffee. Oh, okay, yes, I do smoke, or I used to smoke. Then build in to some of the other, the other um, 
drugs and, and things like that. So you can kind of build into it and let them know that it's safe for them to talk about it. And don't forget to include the assessment of alcohol, which is something I think a lot of us forget to do because it's easy to test for, for opioids and, you know, and for cocaine, and we, can't, we don't really have a test for alcohol, right? But alcohol is really dangerous, isn't it? I mean, especially for someone we are prescribing opioids to or benzos, the risk of, of overdosing is really high. Drunk driving, they can harm other people as well. And it's probably a lot more common than, than all the other addictions we see because it's so readily available. These are all also, in general, patients who have you know, difficulty coping, right? And they, or they have kind of poor coping mechanisms. And so now they're coming up to a point in their lives where they have a life-limiting illness. And if they had a history of alcohol use, they might revert back to it again. And so we want to be able to ask about that. As you guys know, here in Ohio especially, though a lot of other places too, when you ask about alcohol, you can't just ask about beer, because sometimes beer isn't considered alcohol, right? So you gotta ask about beer and, and other things as well. Multidisciplinary, coordinated across teams, really, really important. The stress you feel, you know, if you have a patient with cancer and substance use, the stress you feel as a palliative team member caring for them is also multiplied by those, by the oncologist who, who kind of is worried about the substance use disorder, feels the pressure to prescribe therapeutics to prolong the patient's life, doesn't know what to do, refers to palliative care for help. And so really trying to coordinate, and these are, these are the patients especially that you need to talk to a lot, to your nurses, your social workers, the primary team. Resources for, for mental health um, specialists with training in addiction are limited. They're limited across the country. When you can get them, it's great. Um, if you can't, you have to you know, at least try to coordinate as much as possible with the other team members. Let them know how the, how the visit went. Let, the, let your, you know, if it's an oncologist or a cardiologist, whoever, let them know your concerns, what the successes are, and, and make sure to coordinate. Discuss the patient progress regularly um, with the team and in a holistic fashion. It's, you know, it's important to let them know, hey, you know, I'm, I'm learning there's some, you know, there's some discord in the family right now with finances or something like that. Let all the team members know that because that might lead to you know, poor coping mechanisms down the road. And this can be a benefit for um, the care team as well. So this is actually going to help you and, your, and it's going to help actually provide some counseling to your, your primary team and to your social worker and, and, and your nurse and everyone to be able to talk about this openly and kind of share that, that um, the, the, any kind of stress you feel. Set realistic goals. So this is much, as much for you, the clinician, as well as the patient. 80% of patients with addiction experience relapse within a year. Right? This is a chronic disease. Um, <coughs> patients with diabetes who have the A1C less than seven one month might have their A1C 7.5 or eight, you know, three months down the line, right? So this is a disease just like that. Of note though, you know, diversion of opioids is something that can never be tolerated, right? So, and this is a concern we all, I think a lot of us have with a patient with addiction. It's not only self-harm, but if they have a history of addiction, especially to kind of um, illegal substances, how are they getting those illegal substances? What kind of network do they have? And now if you're prescribing them opioids, um, we get concerned about diversion, right? 
So that is something, that's, that's something where I think we, we really need to make sure we're, we're compassionate with um, treating patients with a substance use disorder, but we really have to make sure that if we, are, we can't allow for diversion of, of these medicines, because then we're harming um, in, you know, other people. Identify psychological disorders. High rates of depression and anxiety exist with those with substance use disorder. Addressing these issues is actually paramount to good palliative care to begin with, and, um, but it's especially vital, especially important to those who have a substance use disorder. <coughs> so we talked about kind of the basic principles of, of how to care for someone with a history or active substance use disorder. Now I want to talk about those patients who, who have pain and who you feel that opioids might be needed for. These are some things that um, should be pretty kind of common sense, but it's good to kind of remember it. So the first one is you want to emphasize non-opioid adjuvants as much as possible. You want to explore non-drug adjuvants, so therapy, um, biofeedback, massage, those, those type, types of um, treatments. When opioids are, are needed, um, it's advised to try to transition to long-acting opioids as, as soon as possible and try to limit the breakthrough, um, use of, of, of breakthrough medicines as much as possible. So, you know, with a patient with kind of dynamic pain who maybe has incidental pain where they, they have worse pain when they're, they're ambulating and not as bad when they're resting, you might need to, they may need to have some short-acting breakthroughs. But you want to limit it. So if they're taking it, you know, they're short-acting oxycodone 10 times a day, that's not really, you know, the way you want to go. You want to try to make that more of a long-acting med. Um, best to limit the amount of medicines dispensed. Um, this is all for the diversion issue. And also, just, it's just good practice. So this is a patient who is, in the past, you know, abused oxycodone or norco, something like that. Giving them 120, 240 pills a month um, might not be the best idea. It might be better to give them a shorter supply and more frequently and check in with them, especially in the beginning when you're trying to develop a, a relationship with that patient. And then if concerns, especially if they have any active addiction, um, if, if they've had a history of addiction and you're kind of developing some concerns, you can refer to an addiction specialist. Next, we're going to talk, kind of switch a little bit. I'm going to talk a little bit about maintenance meds for opioid addiction. Um, so again, behavioral interventions alone, there's about an 80% relapse. Um, methadone and buprenorphine use um, have been shown to decrease illicit drug use, decrease cravings for, um, for the illicit medication, and to increase social function amongst patients with a history of addiction. So methadone maintenance, and the purpose of me of talking about methadone, bupropenone, you know, the, for the, in the context of addiction, so as we'll talk about, uh, palliative, palliative team members don't have a license, right? We're not addiction specialists, so we don't prescribe this for addiction. So I think what's important is that we just recognize when a patient with addiction ha is on these medications, how do we, what do we, we are comfortable with what these medicines are used for, and we know how to respond to it. So the, the half-life of methadone is 20, 28 hours, about 28 hours, and that's what allows for once daily dosing at methadone clinics. A patient can get, can get their methadone in the morning um, and then come back the next day um, for, to get the next dose. The, the biggest concern in, um, for patients who, are, um, who have addiction and are, are in recovery is the fear of withdrawal. If there's a physical, it's a physical component, there's an emotional component of, of withdrawal. And so what methadone does is it helps to, to reduce that physical withdrawal symptoms. Most patients um, stabilize um, at 60 to 120 milligrams per day. 
There, there's been a lot of reports um, now and also over you know, the early 2000s of increased deaths associated with methadone. Methadone has been used safely in the context of addiction for, for decades. And the increased use is in, in uh, fatalities has actually been more, use, more due to um, methadone use for pain by people who aren't experienced in pain management with methadone. At a steady state, methadone relieves opiate withdrawal and blocks the euphoric and sedating effects of superimposed opiates. To a degree, it can be overridden um, by patients. The other good thing about methadone maintenance is it may normalize many of the um, physiologic stress responses that are associated with relapse. Um, however, about 15% will have ongoing illicit substance abuse. Um, and it has been shown that in the context of addiction, intensive psychosocial counseling and support can improve treatment compliance over the first six months. Though these are for patients that are particularly at high risk, though over the course of a year, the, the rates of relapse are about the same. Again, this is a very specifically in, in the population of patients kind of overcoming addiction. And the context for you guys is just to know what kind of goes on on the other side when you, when you see a patient who's been through this. Buprenorphine therapy. Um, has anyone used this in the context of pain management? It's not really used very much here. Anyone uh, familiar with it, though, as being an option? Yeah. So it's a semi-synthetic immune-opioid partial agonist with weak partial agonist um, effects at both the delta and kappa opioid receptors. For addiction, it's most often administered in either sublingual film or tablet form. And most stabilize at 12 to 16 milligrams daily um, in terms for um, addiction treatment. This has come into favor um, recently because it's less likely to induce respiratory depression than full opioid agonists. So the risks of fatal overdose are much lower with buprenorphine than methadone, for example. Nevertheless, deaths have been reported when injected or combined with benzodiazepines. And so um, you guys are probably familiar with Suboxone, which is buprenorphine plus um, naloxone. And naloxone component is activated when, um, when, it, when it, um, Inject, uh, injected. Now, Trexone is a semi-synthetic mu and kappa opioid receptor antagonist. You'll might, you might hear more about this. Um, it's becoming more popular, especially with some um, um, kind of law enforcement circles and, and for patient, patient, uh, people who are, who are arrested for substance abuse. Sometimes they'll kind of be shuttled into, into this um, while in jail or something like that. So it's administered via tablet or, or intramuscularly. Um, Naltrexone's been shown in alcoholism to reduce um, cravings, and it will block the euphoric effects of opioids. The problem with naltrexone is that uh, there's no evidence that it normalizes a stress response. Um, the risk for hepatotoxicity is there at high doses, so we want to, um, especially with patients with you know, hep C, liver cirrhosis, and things like that, it, it might be a relative contraindication. And there's poor compliance. So there's only a 20% compliance at six months with those um, who are prescribed daily naltrexone or um, thrice weekly dosing. And, and more recently, though, there is a monthly um, injection that you can take. So it's unclear about the compliance for that. Finally, um, maintenance therapy options. This is just a, nice, a really nice table um, to kind of re recap some of the, the main um, maintenance therapies out there. Um, you know, credential needed for maintenance. So buprenorphine and methadone. As a palliative provider, you're going to be able to prescribe methadone and 
you know, and, and also buprenorphine for pain without any additional licensing. I let, I let patients know this when I'm prescribing them methadone for pain. I say, you know, they don't, so separately, they don't have a history of addiction. I'm not worried about addiction. I just want them to have methadone for their pain. I'll say, hey, I'm not even licensed to prescribe methadone for addiction. And, and we're not. We can probably prescribe it for pain. Um, and the same thing with buprenorphine. Um, okay, so we're going to transition now to um, some cases. Leave it on. Good morning, everybody. My name is Stephanie Abel. I'm a clinical pharmacy specialist at OSU in palliative medicine. And I would like to start kind of the pharmacotherapy section with some patient cases just so that it helps to stick a little bit better. So the first one that I have for you today, we have AB, who is a 29-year-old female, currently admitted from the emergency department after fracturing her right arm in a car accident. She does have a noted history of heroin use and now is on opioid maintenance therapy, with her current regimen being methadone 90 milligrams a day. Her current inpatient pain regimen is as follows. She's on morphine 15 milligrams orally every six hours as needed for pain. Additionally, she's been started on Ketorlac 15 milligrams IV every eight hours. She continues to report uncontrolled pain and has been told by her primary team that the methadone dosing should help to control her pain. And she's also been labeled as drug seeking. You are now consulted to assist with pain management and drug-seeking behavior. And before we get to the bottom of what you would do in this patient, I think we need a little bit more information about how we would manage these patients in an acute care setting. So first I'd like to talk about the acute pain response in patients um, who don't necessarily have substance use disorder on top of it. So if we have an untreated acute pain response, that's going to initiate psychological and emotional effects. Um, this would happen in any one of us in this room, for example, if we underwent a surgical procedure. We then may have this altered perception of pain that may happen if our pain continues to be untreated, which is going to further potentiate the pain. We might be stressed out, we might be anxious about it. And then this may induce pseudo-addictive or maladaptive behaviors. So we're going to continue to request pain medication, hoping that we can get some pain relief. Also, if we haven't gotten pain relief effectively throughout the hospitalization, we might start to preemptively ask so that we don't get to a point of having a pain crisis again. And that might be seen as uh, addiction behavior where it's really pseudo addiction. Now in a patient who has substance use disorder with opioids, we have the same cascade but it's a little bit more complicated. So you'll note that our psychologic and emotional effects are still intact when our pain is untreated and this altered perception of pain then may get, begin to ensue. Now on top of this, we have a dysregulated stress response. This is at baseline. So we do know that our patients who have substance use disorder have dysregulated stress responses. This has been shown in many studies with cortisol production. And if we have untreated acute pain on top of that, it actually escalates. So even though if we have a patient on methadone or buprenorphine where this normally would be mitigated in terms of our stress response because of that acute pain, it's going to push them over the edge again. And what we know from our psychology literature is that this uh, tends to um, push us to our former coping mechanisms that we may have had in the past. And unfortunately, for many of these patients, this would be returning to their drug of abuse. And then ensuing would be a relapse. 
So now I'd like to talk about some common misconceptions that may occur within an inpatient setting or various places that you may have practiced previously. The first one is maintenance provides analgesia. So our patient who's 29-year-old female that was admitted from the ED was told by her primary team that the methadone really should be helping with her pain control. Now there's two big issues that I f see with this um, as a misconception. Does anybody have any thoughts as to why it wouldn't necessarily provide analgesia for this patient? So the first one that comes to mind for me is that the dosing interval is very different. When we use methadone for pain, usually we can expect to get a benefit of about 6 to 12 hours maybe if we're using it for pain. With maintenance therapy, we dose it every 24 hours, and there are two phases of elimination with methadone, an alpha and a beta phase. Now our analgesia is associated with the alpha phase, and so usually that's a shorter duration of time, whereas the beta phase helps to prevent patients um, from having that withdrawal. And so so we won't actually have an analgesic response for a full 24 hours. So that's the first problem with this misconception. The second problem is that these patients, you may have heard the terms hyperalgesia and tolerance. Can anybody remind me what hyperalgesia is? Okay, so increased sensitivity to a stimulus that's normally not so sensitive. So for example, um, usually something might hurt, right? Like if I were to pinch you, that's not a comfortable sensation, but it's not necessarily gonna make your pain go to 10 out of 10. But if you had a hyperalgesia, your pain response is not necessarily corresponding to that painful threshold. Uh, how about tolerance? Can anybody explain tolerance to me or remind me what that is? downregulation of opioid receptors. So essentially, over time, a patient who takes opioids is going to need more to have an effect, right? So this is a physiologic response, not necessarily a psychological response. And we do know that patients who have a, a history of substance use disorder and they've been on opioids, usually at higher doses for a long period of time, will possess both of these qualities. So they will have hyperalgesia and they will have tolerance. So it will take them more to have a beneficial effect to decrease that pain stimulus, and it's also going to take less of a pain stimulus to have them have the same amount of pain that you or I might experience if we were to undergo the same procedure. The second misconception in the acute care setting would be that opioid use causes addiction relapse. So for the most part, this is exactly that, a misconception. The data actually has not shown this to be true. And in fact, most of our patients, when they are not treated adequately for their acute pain, whether that's using appropriate opioids and optimizing their adjuvants, it actually pushes them back to relapse um, settings. I do want to caution one thing here, um, in, especially in our surgical settings, for patients who are given drugs like IV fentanyl, for example, we know that that drug is very lipophilic if we remember way back to July when that lecture was given. And so it does have a quick on and offset. And because of that, we can have more uh, dopamine release that happens um, within that cycle and cascade of, of the addiction 
um, neurochemistry. And because of that, that could essentially induce a relapse in a patient if it were used inappropriately. So for the most part, we're not going to be using IV push fentanyl in these patients. Um, ideally, we would be sticking to our oral opioids, our adjuvant therapies. And even if we did need to use something like, for example, um, hydromorphone or morphine, they aren't as lipophilic. They're actually more hydrophilic. And so they have a longer rate of dissociation. They're not going to have that quick on and off peak and um, offset. So usually those aren't as much of an issue in this patient population. And the next one, uh, Dr. Kale actually already addressed, would be respiratory and CNS depression is increased with the use of these medications, especially in light of having increased opioid use on top of them in a hospital setting. And we have also found this to not be the case within a clinical trial setting. Uh, the last one is that pain report is a manipulation. So some folks might see that uh, the patient it continues to request that opioid. So back to our patient case, we have this young lady who is getting 15 milligrams of oral morphine. She's only getting it available every six hours. So if she's requesting every single dose, that might be seen as manipulation or drug-seeking behavior, when in reality, she's just not having adequate pain relief. So next, I'd like to talk about how do we actually treat this acute pain in patients that are on opioid agonist therapy for their substance use disorder. So I think the first step that's really important is to reassure the patients that their addiction history actually will not prevent them from obtaining adequate pain management. That doesn't mean we're going to throw all the opioids in the world at these patients. We definitely need to be mindful um, about how we're doing this responsibly and keeping them safe. Uh, but we want to make sure that we are treating their pain adequately. And this has been shown in studies also uh, to help patients maintain their sobriety. Furthermore, we want to ideally continue their maintenance dosing. There may be some times that we would not do that, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But the first step to that ideally would be discussing with our treatment provider, verifying that treatment dose. And we also want to make sure that we're communicating effectively with our treatment provider in terms of their admission and discharge planning and what they received in the hospital when their last doses were, et cetera, so that they can continue to be effective in their treatment plan management once they leave the hospital. A couple of other things that we would want to do would be relieving patient anxiety. So as you can imagine, if you were a patient that had substance use disorder, you came into the hospital for an elective surgery, that's probably going to be a pretty scary thing for you. And so we would want to make sure that we're addressing that concern for these patients. We want to make sure that we're optimizing our conventional analgesics. So as Dr. Kale mentioned, making sure we're optimizing our adjuvants. So things like NSAIDs, acetaminophen, gabapentin if appropriate. How many of you have heard of ERAS protocols or enhanced recovery after surgery? Okay, those are definitely becoming more popular throughout the country and the world as well. And essentially those are um, a lot of times used in liver patients, GI patients, and I know that at OSU we're starting to use them in breast reconstructive surgeries. Essentially we're trying to optimize our multimodal modalities so that we're decreasing opioid use and improving outcomes. So we wanna be able to discharge them sooner, get them out of bed sooner, have them have a bowel movement sooner, and if we can get them to use less opioids, then ideally that's more helpful. Um, a lot of times these patients will receive regional anesthesia as well, and so this would be no different. We would want to utilize those modalities when available for these patients that have substance use disorder. 
We already kind of talked about the issues of tolerance and hyperalgesia in these patients, just making sure we're keeping that in the back of our mind as we approach uh, a patient that has substance use disorder. And as Dr. Colley mentioned, we want to make sure we're considering scheduled dosing versus PRN dosing of these medications. Sometimes in certain situations, uh, we do need to use as needed because it's a safer option. You can also consider using um, oral as opposed to IV and then also liquid formulations if you're concerned about the patient cheeking those medications as well. And then lastly, avoiding mixed agonist antagonists. So in a, in a setting where the patient, for example, is on methadone therapy, we don't necessarily want to treat their pain with buprenorphine because that would incite withdrawal in most of our patients. If they're already on buprenorphine, that's a different story that we'll discuss in a moment. So now let's focus for a minute on patients that are on maintenance methadone dosing. So most of the recommendations tell us that in an ideal setting, we would continue the methadone maintenance for these patients. That's kind of their baseline stabilization. We're not going to necessarily look at that as a pain management modality, but we're just going to know that that's there for their substance use disorder, just as if they were on protonics for acid reflux, for example. So on top of that, then, we want to, want to consider using multimodal analgesia, potentially some short-acting opioids. If you're very comfortable with this patient and you know their history well, you could also put them on a longer-acting opioid if you knew what their tolerance level was, how much they required. Um, or you could start them on short-acting opioids and then transition them to a longer-acting regimen. So now let's circle back to our patient case number one. So if you'll recall, AB, which I hope you all have a handout in front of you, AB is this 29-year-old female who has recently been admitted from the ED with a right arm fracture, and uh, she has methadone 90 milligrams a day, her morphine 15 milligrams every six hours as needed, and then her Ketorlac 15 milligrams every eight hours. So after you review her patient chart, what would be your tentative assessment and plan? Any thoughts? Adjuvants. Adjuvants, absolutely. That is a great answer. So specifically, is there anything about her regimen that you would want to consider changing? So she's on Ketorolac, right, which is a great adjuvant, but she's definitely not optimized on that dose. And we don't necessarily know what her renal function numbers are, but after some clarification, if her renal function is normal, I would suggest going up on that to maybe 30 milligrams every six hours, so a kind of a more standardized dose to get her through this acute period. You could also use things like acetaminophen, gabapentin, um, assess for neuropathic pain features, and add anything that you needed to that would be appropriate for that. Great. Um, anything else? Adjust her morphine dose. Adjust her morphine dose. I'm not sure if the two was effective at all, but the dosing interval is too long. Perfect. So the comment was that we need to adjust her morphine dose. The interval, at the very least, is too long based on the pharmacokinetics of the drug. We would need to investigate if the 15 milligram dose itself is helpful for her pain, but at the very least, increase that to possibly Q3 to Q4 hours as needed. Absolutely. Um, the other things that I would add would be we would want to clarify this dose with the treatment provider if it has not already been done. 
we want to reassure the patient because I'm sure she's kind of in a state now where she's feeling like she has not been very trusted throughout this hospitalization. We want to um, inquire about any history with short-acting opioids. So has she been admitted to the hospital before? What was she treated with? Was that an effective regimen for her? Also asking about triggers can be very important. A lot of patients know if they've been admitted in the hospital before and they are um, confident in maintaining their sobriety, they'll know, for example, that hydromorphone is a trigger for them and they want you to avoid that medication. And so having that conversation can kind of just save you some time and ideally help the patient. Um, titrating short-acting opioids, which we already mentioned. And then lastly, I would also say educating the primary team as well would be something that would be very helpful to do because clearly there's some misunderstandings about what's going on with this patient. Great job, guys. Okay. So now we're going to introduce patient case number two. So we now have DG, who's a 24-year-old male. He's admitted for sickle cell pain crisis with a noted history of opioid abuse, and he's currently on buprenorphine naloxone sublingual, also known as suboxone, 16 milligrams once daily. His last dose was noted to be taken this morning before he was admitted to the hospital. And you are now consulted on admission for acute pain management in the setting of a history of opioid abuse, and this patient is noted to be compliant with his maintenance therapy. So before we get to answering that question, let's talk about acute pain management and some strategies in patients on buprenorphine. So this is a little bit more tricky and can be more dicey depending on your patient care situation. So you'll note that there are four up here and we're going to talk about each one of them in a little bit more detail. So this first one is continuing buprenorphine while maintaining um, short-acting opioids on top of this. So let's talk about pros and cons of each one of them as we go through this. So this would be a great situation for a patient who has acute pain right now. For example, this is not a planned admission. We're not doing an elective procedure, um, but we have a patient who's coming in with an acute pain. They've been compliant with their maintenance therapy, and we need to do something about that. So. We know that uh, that buprenorphine is 20 times um, more affinity for the mu opioid receptor than our other opioid agonists do. And so the goal of this is that while 90 to 95% of our, our mu opioid receptors are going to be, <coughs> excuse me, occupied by buprenorphine, that the other 5 to 10% will be hit by these full agonists and that will help with our pain relief and analgesia. And so you're really just trying to optimize the bang for your buck on this. The other benefit of this is that you're not having to start and stop. So for example, if we stop buprenorphine, the sublingual half-life is about 37 hours. And then you can imagine since it has such a high affinity for those mu receptors, if you're adding other opioid agonists on top of that, eventually those are going to kind of take over those mu receptors. So you do have an increased risk of respiratory depression in those patients over time. And then lastly, the complicating factor is that it has to be reinitiated. Some institutions feel if a patient has been off of this therapy for several days, that to be reinitiated, that really needs to be done by the treatment care provider because the considerations that would have been initially used to start buprenorphine therapy would be the same. So for example, you have to make sure that your patient is off all of their opioids, short acting for at least 12 hours, long acting for at least 24. If they've been on methadone or fentanyl 
patches, that number is even extended further than that. You want to make sure that they've been compliant with the therapy and all of that. And so from an inpatient perspective, that can be a little bit dicey in terms of how do you coordinate that care with the treatment provider to reinitiate their therapy. So just keep that in mind as you're moving forward. Some institutions don't have a problem with you reinitiating, but just remember you would have to get them off of all of their full agonists before restarting that buprenorphine. The second option is that we can divide buprenorphine dose every six to eight hours. So you may remember that buprenorphine can be used as an analgesic. Similarly to methadone, its half-life is so long that it does prevent patients from having withdrawal when given once daily, but it's not going to provide an analgesic benefit when dosed that way. Really for analgesia, we tend to see it dosed every four to eight hours depending on the patient care situation. So this is definitely something that could be done. Um, you can also treat with short-acting opioids on top of this uh, to optimize the, that 5 to 10% of receptors that wouldn't be occupied in hopes of achieving acute pain relief. The next method would be to discontinue their maintenance therapy and treat with full opioid agonists or full opioid analgesics. So a couple things here. Um, as I mentioned, the half-life is very long, so when you do discontinuous therapy and you're adding full agonists, we do have that increased risk of respiratory depression that can occur in these patients, and then you have the issue of having to restart it um, once they either leave the hospital or towards the end of their hospitalization stay, and so those can definitely be challenges that arise with these patients. I would say for patients that have elective procedures, for example, this might be a good option, so if you know that you're going to have a pretty significant spinal procedure, you're going to be in surgery for nine hours, and you have time to plan for this, to taper them off of it prior to their admission, this is probably a better option than that patient that comes in immediately having an acute, acute pain crisis, whether that's from a trauma or sickle cell crisis, etc. And our last option would be to convert these patients to methadone and treat with short-acting opioids, and this is recommended to be done as an inpatient only. Um, usually the doses of methadone that are used are between 20 to 40 milligrams. If you have a patient that's on um, pretty significant doses of buprenorphine, they usually recommend 30 to 40 milligrams for this. Once again, this is probably a better option for patients that you have a planned admission. And why do I say that? What is the analgesic benefit of methadone? When does that kick in usually? Five days, right? So, and that's analgesic, so it would also be the same in terms of reaching half-life for maintenance therapy as well. So if you have an acute patient, or acute, a patient that's acutely admitted with acute pain, and you're trying to switch them over, they're not necessarily going to get the agonist benefits for substance use disorder for three to five days. And so that can be a problem for these patients. Also, you sometimes have to titrate this so you prevent them from going into withdrawal, so that can be an issue as well. So definitely a better option for more of a planned admission situation. So now let's return to our patient case, DG. So remember, you're consulted on admission on this gentleman who's 24 years old on 16 milligrams once a day of Suboxone sublingually. He has no lapses in therapy. What would your tentative assessment and plan be for this patient in terms of treatment strategies? And there could be more than one right answer here. either adding the 
Great. So the comment was he fits probably with one of the first two strategies, so either adding short-acting opioids above and beyond or um, optimizing your dose by giving it every six to eight, or eight hours. So that would be great, and that way we know that his acute pain ideally will be treated at that point. We don't have to worry about him coming off of the buprenorphine, increased respiratory depression potentially, and then reinitiating his therapy while he's in the hospital. The next patient case, we have TW. He's a 35-year-old female, also on Suboxone maintenance therapy for history of opioid use disorder. She's currently admitted uh, traumatically from a car accident. She's been in the ICU for the past 48 hours. Her Suboxone was stopped on admission due to worries about pain control and difficulty with sublingual dosing with an endotracheal tube. Now she's on hydromorphone 4 milligrams IV every three hours as needed, and she's being transferred to the floor currently. You're consulted for poor pain control and recommendations in light of her substance use history and the fact that her suboxone has been stopped. So at this point, what would your tentative assessment and plan be? Any thoughts on her? This is a little bit more tricky. Exactly. Great. So the comment was she's been off of it for a few days, so we're probably looking at the situation where if it's going to be reinitiated, it needs to be done with her treatment care provider. And so for now, just letting her stay off of the therapy, treating her with opioids, and then coordinating that care with her provider. I think the other thing to consider here is since we are 48 hours out, and this is at the time of the consult, right? So you haven't even seen her yet. You haven't made your recommendations. The primary team hasn't put them in. So by the time all that happens, it's going to be several hours later. You could incite withdrawal because this patient has been getting a decent dose of hydromorphone IV and she has been taking it fairly frequently. And so we definitely don't want to do that. Um, as we have her at 48 hours now, so what's one of the things that you would want to monitor for in this patient since you're using a full opioid agonist and knowing that she's coming off of the buprenorphine? We want to monitor for respiratory depression, absolutely. And then um, also her as-needed opioid might need to be titrated during this time frame too because all of her mu opioid receptors are now going to be eventually taken over by the full agonist whereas they just had the partial agonist before. So that could potentially be um, an issue. And then remind me how long this patient would need to be off of her short-acting opioids and any long-acting opioids before her therapy was reinitiated. So let's say you contacted the treatment provider and they're okay with this being restarted um, after she's discharged from the hospital. How would you kind of approach that care plan for this patient? Good. Perfect. So she needs to be off of all short acting for 12 hours and off of all long acting for 24. And ideally, we want to be tapering that, right? So we're not inciting withdrawal from those opioids as well. So lots of things to consider. Great job. And the last patient case that I have for you today is CL, who's a 44-year-old male, and he's currently on uh, the intramuscular formulation of naltrexone, also known as Vivitrol, for a history of opioid use disorder. 
He's currently scheduled to undergo an elective spinal surgery that's going to be pretty extensive. This is supposed to happen in about two weeks, and the surgeon calls you to discuss what the best treatment options might be to treat his acute pain in light, in light of his maintenance therapy regimen. What would your recommendations be for this patient? Any thoughts? What do you guys know about intramuscular naltrexone? How often is it dosed? Does anybody know? And if you don't, that's okay. It's about every 28 days. So it sticks around for a really long time. The half-life is about five to 10 days, but the therapeutic effect of it is the full or antagonism for 28 days. So what's one of the first things you would probably want to know? When his last dose was, absolutely. Because if it was three weeks ago, then we'd probably be okay, right? We would just want to make sure that they hold his next dose um, prior to the surgery. But if it was a week ago, we probably would recommend that they push back the surgery if possible. What, what would happen in this situation if you got a phone call that this kind of fell through the cracks and this patient did get the spinal surgery and was on the naltrexone IM and let's say they got their injection last week? What would your be approach? What would your be what would be your approach to that patient? Any thoughts? I see lots of not-so-happy faces. That's a bad situation, right? So ideally, we're going to optimize the heck out of our adjuvants, right? Um, if you can catch them while they're still in surgery or if we can get acute pain or anesthesia pain or whatever group that might be called in or affiliated in your institution, if we can do some regional anesthesia, that would be ideal. And that's pretty much the best you're going to get. You could potentially try to use opioids on top of that, but it's not necessarily highly recommended because we know if he got his injection a week ago, he's not really going to feel any of that within his receptors are going to be mostly occupied by a full antagonist. Um, the other thing that I wanted to let you guys know would be if so let's say this patient had their dose three weeks ago. We held the, the next dose. He got his surgery in two weeks. He was treated with full agonists. Everything went swimmingly. Um, it wouldn't be able to be reinitiated in this patient for seven to 10 days afterwards. So we don't want to induce withdrawal in this patient. And that's also true for the oral formulation as well. So if that stopped, then we would need to wait seven to 10 days if they've gotten full agonists for any type of duration. And if the patient were on oral naltrexone instead, it needs to be held for 48 to 72 hours prior to any procedure. So that's a little bit more of an easy situation to deal with. They recommend 48 to 72 hours if it's going to be kind of a mild to moderate procedure. And if it's going to be a significant procedure, then at least 72 hours it needs to be stopped so that that patient can have adequate analgesia. So some take-home points that Dr. Colley and I would like for you guys to, to run with after being here this morning would be that patients with addiction issues certainly have chronic and possibly a terminal illness with multiple palliative needs that we can certainly intervene in and be a part of their care plan and optimize outcomes. Their maintenance medications should be continued in most circumstances upon acute admission. 
and federal law does regulate how these medications are managed for the treatment of substance use disorder versus pain is a little bit of a different story. So we can usually prescribe them for pain. We can certainly continue them inpatient without having certain credentialing, but we cannot initiate therapy for buprenorphine or methadone in these patients without having proper addiction training and credentialing. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you'll rate and review this podcast and share it with your colleagues and your friends. So you don't miss any of our new content, make sure you are subscribing to PCIC Podcasts. PCIC is sponsored by PalMed, where our aim is to advance palliative care globally and ensure all clinicians have the latest knowledge and skill. To access more PCIC content, please visit palmed.us to review our extensive open access PCIC curriculum. <laughs>